These three folks really have a wealth of experience in the business, and uh, Jake is actually helping spearhead um, a new concept, I think, um, with the radio exchange, which is sort of speaks perhaps to a little bit to the future of the way that independent producers can distribute their uh, work. And uh, so between the, the three of them, we sort of are going sort of with the more traditional avenues of being able to get your work on the air and also hopefully with something that is uh, an indication of what to look forward to in the future. Um, Margaret Lowe Smith is NPR's Vice President of Programming, and why don't you give us a little background? You've you've had a lot of years there working with ATC and so on. I'm actually looking at K10. 20, <laughs> 20, 22 years ago, we met in New York City to do uh, the history of the labor movement in New York City, uh, <laughs> and I did a documentary called Hard Times for Picket Lines mm -hmm. about the 30s and the, the beginning of the uh, CIO. And after that, I discovered that I loved radio, and that's what I wanted to do, and I lucked into a job, um, which I don't think you can do this easily anymore. I just sort of called up and said, can I come work for you? And they said, sure, come for three weeks, and I never left. Um, I started out as an overnight production assistant on Morning Edition and, um, and worked at All Things Considered for 10 years. And now um, I'm a vice president for programming, and that means, God, it's hard to explain what it means, but it means that <laughs> I'm responsible for acquired programs. I'm now in charge of the music and entertainment units, and I, um, I'm the person that or among a group of people that goes through all program submissions that come into the company. And I've um, been in charge of developing new programs like the Tavis Miley Show and the Motley Fool Radio Show. Um, but I think in some ways um, my presence here is meaningful in the sense that I've worked on a show which was in effect a gatekeeper to pieces for 10 years, and I can talk a little bit about that. Can everybody hear her, even though she's oh. not speaking in her microphone? Oh, okay. God. <laughs> I just thought everyone could probably hear, so I didn't mess I'm not up. used to talking into the microphone. I'm just... Right. Anyway, thank you all for coming. And, uh, and Heidi uh, Schultz, you want to tell us a little bit about you, you know, your job and uh, what you do there? Sure, yeah. I've been at PRI for about uh, 11 years now. And before that, I was in public TV as a production manager. Um, I started out at PRI as a cultural assistant and just worked up to program manager. I listened to all submissions of specials and limited series. And then there are uh, Dale Spear, who's the VP of programming, who's on this sheet, um, deals with the ongoing programs, the weekly programs or the daily programs. Um, and we might all take a listen to those also and work, work together on that. Um, we distribute about 50 specials a year. And I deal with those producers and help them market the program through the PRI process. And your official title is the program manager mm -hmm. of limited program manager. specials. Yeah, specials and limited series. Okay, great. PRI also, as most of you know, uh, is the distributor of This American Life uh, Studio 360. Yeah, on the sheet here, I can. Um, we, if you if you've got specific pitches for programs that we distribute, you would go directly to those programs because. We only um, we acquire the programs, but as far as pitching um, features for those programs, you go right to them, and they're all on the sheet. It's Marketplace, Savvy Traveler, and JJ's in the back of the room from from there. If you've got any specific questions for him, great. Uh, <laughs> National Native News, which is a five-minute daily news program, Studio 360, uh, This American Life, The World. And the next big thing, which I did not put on the sheet, but if you wanted to write down the information. Uh, it's Christopher Bannon, uh, B-A-N-N-O-N, and his email is cbannon at wnyc.org, and he would be happy to hear from you. <laughs> and they had CDs up on the, um, the that little holder upstairs, so if you want to take a listen to the program or visit their website, uh, and which I don't have the address for. Let's see if I have it here. It's, it's not on here either. Um, but I think they also had some um, handouts up there. So I'll just take a look up there. So for those specific um, shows, refer to the contact sheet that she gave you, but we'll be talking with you probably more about how to get limited specials uh, distributed through public radio international, something a little bit different. Um, and Jake, tell us about the radio exchange, sure. please. I think we have to give you a few extra minutes because it's a, <laughs> it's a it's different very project. New. Yeah. It's new, and it's a, it's a different system for distribution of uh, public radio content. And Unlike my two colleagues on either side, I've been at this for about three months on this new job. <laughs> You're young, um, we're old. <laughs> but I, I also was a producer um, for a call-in talk show out of Boston called The Connection, um, and I'm uh, an independent musician and have worked in some Internet um, circles before. And so a lot of those things combined 
led up to me being very interested in this idea. And the idea really is um, to create an alternate way of distributing public radio work um, as an online distribution service where producers and stations would be collectively part of a system where content would be uploaded by producers or content creators. And then stations would be able to search and sift through the content and it would be uh, peer-reviewed so that there's some sense of uh, context around these pieces. It's not just a straight catalog. And then stations would actually be able to download directly um, and put on their air the pieces off of the, the site. Um, we we're working around the idea that there's a group of interested stations, and there's already a few doing this before the rate exchange has been built, that will actually set aside a block of time in their schedules, um, on sort of a showcase slot, to uh, leave open for this kind of work, where they would be able to go on to something like the rate exchange and find a variety of pieces. It could be a half-hour documentary. It could be an hour documentary. It could be shorter pieces where they are stringing them together based on their own interests. Um, and whatever their local host might want to do. So we're not actually serving a, a program, sort of a national program vehicle. The idea is really to allow stations to take their own profile and create whatever kind of program out of the material available on the radio exchange that they'd like. Um, there are some examples of this already uh, down in the Cape and Islands. Jay Allison in Woods Hole. Jay Allison is, is, and his group, Atlantic Public Media, is really one of the, the, the founding groups of this idea. Um, he has a four-hour Sunday night block where he does exactly that. He calls himself a documentary DJ. And he uh, you know, goes through his own archives and contacts other people and basically does it by mail and CD um, and hosts that show where he'll introduce it. And you know, some of the stuff is brand new, some of it's old. Um, he uses, obviously, his own contacts, his own knowledge of this field to be able to pull that together. The radio exchange, the idea behind it is to make that something that's possible for all stations to be able to do, um, and also to give it so that producers uh, don't have to necessarily go through these kinds of gatekeeping practices that are uh, in place for all of the national vehicles or other stations. Um, that's the essence of the idea. I mean, it gets a lot more involved in terms of the elements of it, but the, the three key elements really are that it's an online distribution network, uh, that there's peer review on it so that the work that's uploaded is available to be reviewed by the users of the system, whether it's stations or other producers, so that you can comment on these pieces. And then that helps the people looking for the work to be able to sense uh, what the community thinks of it. Um, and then we're also developing it so that there's a pricing model. We're not, we're, you know, we're jumping right into what is going to be a sticky uh, question of how to figure out what a fair market would be for this kind of work. It's not the kind of sort of first acquisition per minute, per hour, day rates that you would pay if you're working for a show directly or for a network that's acquiring material. It's more like an ancillary or secondary use of work. And the idea is that we would have the users, the content acquirers, whether most likely stations, paying into a, uh, as a subscription to a pool um, where uh, when they acquire stuff off of the radio exchange, the producer would get paid out of that pool on some kind of a permanent rate. And right now we're working through models for how that will work. Um, and we're, we're eager to get feedback from, from everybody. Um, we have a survey actually up on radioexchange.org for producers to, to fill out and tell us a bit about how they currently use um, the Internet, whether they're comfortable with the digital formats that are required to upload work, um, and some of their expectations around what a system like this would be. So I'd encourage everybody to go on and fill, fill that out, and then I can answer more questions. If you came in late, um, at the back of the room, there's a handout that Jay brought along about the radio exchange, which sort of outlines this perhaps in slightly more detail. Mm -hmm. And there's also a handout from NPR News on the submission guidelines and a, a so-called cheat sheet from PRI on the contacts and all the information you need about the various shows. So make sure you pick that up before you leave. Um, I wanted to just sort of get a feel for who you guys were, because um, it seems like there's a lot of different levels of producers who attend this conference. And I just sort of want to get a vague idea um, how many of you would consider yourself very new to the independent producer life? Okay, that's great. Um, how many people have produced a number of pieces and had them on, you know, a national outlet or a local outlet? Okay, then. And then how many people um, would consider yourself sort of a freelance independent producer and that's what you do, that's it, you make a living off of that and you've been at it for a while? Okay, great. Um, 
I want to kind of put this together somewhat like in a town meeting format in that I want to sort of throw out some questions to uh, each of um, Heidi and Jake and Margaret, and then we'll take your questions on the topic, and then we'll sort of move on to a new topic and then take questions ag again. And we wanted to start out with the concept of the pitch, um, which for you old hats probably won't be such useful information, but um, for the rest of us, hopefully it will be informative and Margaret, you have some really good stories around the, you know, what's a good pitch, you know, and who do, how do you pitch in a correct way to somebody, and how do you get through to them, and what does that successful pitch sound like or, or look like, and should you email it or should you call it, and, you know, who, what, is the gatekeep, what are the gatekeepers looking for um, when it comes time to that sort of cold call? Right. Thank you. Um, when Julia said she wanted me to talk about the perfect pitch, I actually went outside of public radio in my head to think about six years ago, Noah Adams and I went to Hollywood, and we met this guy who is known around town as the 60-second pitch artist. And he used to just, I mean, you know, he used to collect thousands and thousands of dollars in one minute just with an idea. And um, I, if you'll indulge me a bit, I actually, I actually wrote down what he said because it was so, it's so translated to what we do in public radio. Noah said to him, when somebody screws up a pitch... What are they doing wrong? So here's what he said. He said, there are so many things that can go wrong. Number one, they're walking in without enough enthusiasm so that if they don't have it, why should the listener? Number two, they've picked a subject matter that is already too familiar or wrong-headed in the sense that the studios, or NPR, have no interest in making a movie about three lesbians on Venus. And lastly, I think they don't pitch things in a summarized fashion. They think because they have such a great story, they need to share every detail. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was my 10 years of experience as a producer on All Things Considered. And in effect, every morning on that show, as I'm sure looking at JJ Marketplace is probably a little bit like that too, um, is essentially a pitch meeting. You sit around the table and you come in with your pitches. And if you don't come in um, knowing what you want that idea to sound like on the radio that night or the next night, it ain't going to fly. And your peers are your hardest critics. So here's what I always like in the ATC meeting too. You would take your balloon and you would toss it up in the air. And everybody around the table would try to stick pins in your balloon. And the, the pins would be, that was on Morning Edition. What's the second question? I don't hear a story there. And your goal would be, so sure to, would be to be so sure of your story that you could keep your balloon in the air. And it was a daily challenge. And there were people who weren't willing to play or couldn't, you know, it was a scary game to play. It was, you know, with all the love in my heart, it was survival of the fittest. And, and the reason I tell that story is to say, I think entry into NPR or PRI or any of these places feels hard. And it feels like there's sort of, there are gatekeepers and lions there trying to keep you out. The truth is that internally, people are as hard on each other and demanding of sort of a fully conceived idea as they are with anybody on the outside. So if you call NPR to make a pitch or write an email to make a pitch, have a great story, love it, sell it, know that there's a beginning, middle, and an end, and keep it short. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's the early notion of what a good pitch is. Um, Heidi, let's get your to weigh in on sort of how you deal with your relationships with independent producers. You have a very, very different thing going on. Right. Um, with PRI, we distribute um, more specials and limited series than NPR does, and that's um, a lot of uh, producers come to us to, for that distribution. And um, we distribute about, I'd say, between 40 and 50 specials a year that can be one-time specials or 13-part series. You know, it can range anywhere in between there. About half of those are in the holiday package, which are the winter holidays, Thanksgiving through New Year's, and then the other 25 are through the rest of, rest of the year. Again, most of those are still going to be related to holidays, commemorative months like Women's History Month, Black History Month, uh, you know, July 4th, Memorial Day, that kind of thing. And the reasoning behind that is the, the market is really saturated and stations have to have a reason to move their regular programming to put a one-time special out there or they're going to hear from their listeners. And I think that that is the easiest way for a lot of producers to at least start out with, you know, when you're coming to PRI is to think about those kind of one-hour specials, maybe two-hour specials. And then once stations get to know your work, they may be more willing to move programming for your special. So you typically have an independent producer who's got an hour? Yeah, it's in, and I'd say most of the time... 
the, the program is almost finished. If not finished, that's another thing. You, you have to have it pretty much funded on your own. We really don't have a lot of money. The money that we do have is more for what I call fine-tuning because you're going to have to do promos, ID breaks, add the tags, that kind of thing, um, and, and we'll help you market it. But um, uh, the way I see the, the job that I do is to help you get your program out there nationally so that you, could, you can go out there and get funding. Um, we, we just can't fund a whole program. It's, it's just a really tough, tough thing. Um, I like that idea. You don't get a lot of money up front, but in the end, if you can have that PRI-associated distribution with your piece, you can use that, leverage that, to hopefully get more funding to continue to do independent work. Um, I think that when I spoke with Tori Malatia about the notion of independent work and sort of the marketplace for independent work um, before we came over here. And he sort of has this sort of historical view. He found it to be a little bit ironic that he feels as though it's come full circle in that when NPR, and I'm speaking specifically of NPR now, when public radio began, it was very much, uh, well, in Pacific and all the others, it was very much an experimental time. It was very exciting. People were able to do uh, work that hadn't been done before, and it was sort of unbounded by formats and limitations, and it was sort of just what people could come up with. It was very exciting. And then there came this sort of <laughs> migration or evolution or devolution, if you like, in which it became sort of the McDonald's format, right? Everybody has to sound this way. These are what are, This is what's successful, and we're all sort of trying to duplicate that particular sound. And his opinion is that at this point, we're sort of the window is reopening to more creative work and that this may be, hopefully, some sort of new era in which people, stations, are more willing to take risks in the type of programs that they are willing to put on. And I'm speaking now as a worker at a local station, and he's obviously the station manager there, and, you know, I think that this station, Chicago Public Radio, has taken um, some risks in terms of trying to do other types of, of work and other types of shows. And I, th I think I want to ask you, Heidi, whether you have found uh, that the other stations across the country are also more, do you find that they're more open in any way towards these limited series that, that are different sounding or that are more innovative or more experimental in any way? Well, I think it's still tough, like I said, because the market is so saturated and, there's so much out there. I think it is still tough to place things, but I do think I don't have any concrete evidence for this because we just had a uh, research done this last spring about specials, um, and I don't have any specific stations. They, they wouldn't mention specific stations when they gave us back the research, but there's this feeling that um, stations are, be, are a little bit more open towards specials. I mean, like WNYC is they, they're going to have a slot or an uh, a larger kind of slot where they're going to be experimenting a little bit more. And like you were talking about where Jake was talking about what Jay's doing, it's WCAI, WNAN. Um, I, I just think there's a feeling out there, a little bit more openness from PDs. I, I think PDs, in general, they love the documentary style. This is not um, something that they don't want to air. It's just you know, they've, got the, they've got a full schedule with what they've got right there, you know, with the ongoing programs. So it's really tough to move it around. But I do think that there's um, a general trend or a general feeling of being a little bit more open towards that right now. So How many of you are familiar with Transom? Okay. Jake, you... I yeah. mean, I'm kind of curious what yeah. you know. How you know what's what what happened there, well, we're very much and how this has sort of yeah. given birth to right. Yeah, we're very much part of that trend and hoping to encourage it. And Why don't you explain it a little bit for those who, well, who for, don't know? Well, Transom and Red Exchange are separate. Um, Transom.org really is a showcase uh, space for the kinds of work that can't necessarily be categorized or might be just innovative in a way that uh, illustrates things that uh, aren't making their way onto traditional vehicles um, and the sort of strict programming niches that exist, and Jay's done a great job in just sort of inspiring a lot of dialogue about those kinds of works and looking outside of public radio um, to filmmakers and photographers and other people working creatively that have something to say to the to the art, really, of, of radio on that site. Um, what inspires the work, then, that we're doing in Radio Exchange out of that is that we want to encourage that what could be just a growing trend for stations recognizing that they really do need to take some risks in programming and in order to sort of invest in the programming and, and innovate in some way that will help grow audiences or connect to audiences in different ways and um, make sure that they, as a station, stay relevant and significant in their communities, they need to think about shaking it up. Um, and it's true, there's saturation out there. There's tons of programs, and they're coming from everywhere. 
Um, what we hope to do is just make that risk taking a lot easier so that the, some of the hurdles around sorting through and finding and evaluating and then actually acquiring and paying for that kind of work um, are made a lot lower through something like the radio exchange. Um, but really the hope is that you will be able to go on and find hundreds if not thousands of pieces that might not have fit into some of these other niches or things that had existed before. Maybe there was some great work that came out a year ago that appeared once as a segment on, that one of you produced for, a, for one of these shows. You wrote an email to the Studio 360 off of the sheet and it got played and now it could have another life um, on maybe one or two stations that picked it up off the radio exchange. And um, then there's a negotiation between the producer and the acquirer, right? Well, what we're hoping to do is 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 make Which it so that some of those negotiations are built into the economy of the site, so that there there doesn't have to be an, a one-on-one deal making every time these kinds of right. decisions. Right, but how are made. does it work with Transom? Isn't that isn't that main? Transom is is very different because it's really just I think about once a month at this point that Jay. Um, will showcase a, a bit of work, and he does reach out and work with each of the, the uh, producers that is uh, putting something on there. And you should, certainly, uh, you know, he gets submissions all the time and, and sifts through it with his staff and decides basically on what to showcase on that site. And then at that point, once if you've been exposed through that website and somebody wants to acquire so your work, contact, they contact you directly, they contact you directly, which exactly. I think is the yeah. model for Transom, which is interesting right. and different mm -hmm. from what the radio exchange mm -hmm. is going to do. Um, all right, we're going to come back to sort of the future in the web in a few minutes. Let's go back to you, Margaret, and get back to some nuts and bolts. In terms of especially uh, those who are new into this business, I think the big catch-22, right, is you're new, you, you aren't unproven, <laughs> you, you want to convince somebody that they can uh, take a chance with your work and, and that you really can do great work. They, on the other hand, aren't going to take your work until you've been proven, until you've proven that you've done that work. So it's a tough slot to be in. The, the big thing is how do you get your foot in the door. Um, how open are the NPR shows, the news, various news shows, to new talent, and what do you advise for those who are trying to, in fact, get that, that first foot in the door? What's the best way to approach or make contacts or develop relationships with the editors? How do you right. get them on their good side? Yeah, it. it um, I mean, I think the answer is there's incredible appetite for ideas and incredible appetite for new voices and sort of what you were talking about, Julia. There is sort of, you know, NPR has now been around for 30 years and sort of wants to break out of itself as well and sort of get fresh voices on the air. Um, the hard part, I mean, I think the biggest enemy of getting independent voices on the air is people's time. And that's one of the things that you have to cut through. And it, it's just, a, it's sort of a painful reality about the people that you're dealing with. Um, the good news is that, I mean, actually in the flyer that you have, there are lists of people to contact. And the best point of entry if you're doing freelance work is to come in through either the bureau chiefs who are all over the country and they're all listed there and or Peggy Gershman, who's the assistant managing editor and sort of a conduit for independence. Um, and then, and then the question is sort of, well, if I email the bureau chief and they don't email me back, what do I do? And I think that's probably the worst thing that most people face. And I would say, number one, be patient. Not too patient, but patient. Um, number two, um, don't take anything personally. Even if it is personal, it doesn't do, <laughs> it doesn't do you any good to take it personally. Number three, um, don't give up in the sense that actually people who push do get heard. There's sort of that delicate balance between not being so pushy that they think you're obnoxious. I mean, it's true in every aspect of life, probably. Not being so pushy that people think you're obnoxious, but sort of being pushy enough so that people say, oh, I'm finally going to email, email this person back. Don't expect an email back right away. Um, but if you don't get one, try again. If you don't, if you don't hear back from somebody, you can always call Peggy Gershman. Um, what I would sort of personally recommend is listen really carefully for the show to the shows. I mean, they are, there are a lot at NPR, just like PRI. There are a lot of different vehicles with completely different sensibilities, and in some ways, it's wonderful to say I have this incredible story to tell, and I want to tell it no matter what. But look for the show that that story belongs on, um, or look or listen to the show and say. What is this show missing? What can I do that will enhance the value of this show today? And sometimes, just to get your foot in the door, it may be that you call up the editor and say, do you need Vox? I've got a tape recorder, and I know how to record people. 
you know, that may be a good way to make somebody, make a friend of somebody. Um, you know, mostly on NPR, it's news, they are news magazines, so there is a, timeliness is relevant. I mean, it may be the, I mean, this is sort of an awful story to talk about, but it may be, you know, two weeks ago, the big story was that a sniper was in, on the loose in the Washington area. Well, maybe you live in New York and you happen to know the mother of somebody who was, God forbid, killed by son of Sam, and this is the time for you to say, hey, I've got this story and it's just right for you. I don't know if that's the kind of stories you're wanting to tell, but think, I, I guess the best way to say it is to think strategically um, about a way to get in. I mean, getting in is imperative. Um, and the other thing is, if you are emailing, I mean, I think, I, I think one point I didn't make is that if there is something, to, if you have something breaking, call and say so. And I would also not be timid. Don't say, would you want, say, I've got, I've got something that you need. Um, make them feel that you're desirable and that if they don't take it, they're going to be missing out on something. And they probably are. They just may not have time to realize that. You know, the other thing is, is that, I mean, and this is just the honest, honest experience of being on the other side of the gate, is like, and my husband, who's a musician, we were just talking about this. People are looking for you not to be good. It's easier if you're not good because then they don't have to take the time to call you. If you're, it's much easier to figure out what's wrong with something than what's right with something. And that's just, I see JJ nodding. That's just, it's the truth about the business. So um, you have to make them know you're good. And don't be doubtful about it. Don't be shy. Tell them, here's why you want me. Here's why you need me. Um, and if there's not breaking news, do email. Do be persistent. Do be brief. Do be charming. <laughs> make them want you. Make them want to get to know you. Make them want to help you. I mean, one of the... One of the most seductive things is for somebody to say, I've got something great. I need your help to get in. Make them your collaborator. Tell them a story that they feel so excited about that they want to actually go to their boss or their editor and say, I've got this great story. You allow them to own it and, and develop it with you, and then, you're, and then they're hooked. How many of you work at local stations? Anybody? Do you, any of you have connections with the NPR bureau chiefs from your region? because that's sort of their thing. That's what right. they're supposed to be doing, is right. developing relationships with your station. So if you don't know them yet and you want to get stuff on the network, you should probably, I mean, I think that would be the place to start, yeah. right? I think yeah. they have a little bit more time. I hate nobody's I, out I, of time, but I, I, to I work know. with people. Do you know I, what I mean? It's part of their, it's part of their, it's part of their mandate. Purpose. It's part of their mandate. Yeah. The, the only other thing that I would say is I wouldn't, I mean, it's nice to see that people work at local stations. I also wouldn't overlook local stations. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to get your stuff on the air and to have people hear it and feel it. The, the, other, the other piece that comes in sort of over the transom to us is commentaries, and commentaries actually do go to the shows. Um, I don't have a list of um, the show editors who deal with commentators, but I know a lot of independent producers sometimes do commentary or sometimes do commentary with tape that could come in through the shows, and each show has a designated hitter um, to deal with commentaries. Yeah, the local angle. I was actually, Johanna will be very upset if I don't talk a little bit about um, local stuff. She's very adamant in her belief that, you know, there's nothing wrong with local work and that you're reaching your audience. And actually, Jay's pretty eloquent about this as well, about the value of doing work in your own community and having your fellow people listen to your work and get something out of your work and have it be very meaningful for them. I don't think it's about the glory and the ambition of getting heard uh, across the world. I think if you're interested in what public radio really means, I think reaching people in your own community is a very valuable thing to do. And I think there are some stations, and I would cite ours as an example, in which there are, very, there are about three or four ways in which you can get your stuff on the air. Uh, from my own experience with Chicago Matters, uh, we always use a lot of freelancers in producing this series. I see it as an opportunity to hear from different people throughout the city, from different communities throughout the city, and to bring those voices on to uh, our, uh, our station, but also, uh, and Tashima works on the show 848, which is a local news magazine show. They do a lot of work with contributors. They don't get paid barely anything, but it's that old trade-off of then when you go uh, to someone else down the line, you can say, here's this piece that was aired on the local station. Here's what it sounds like. I've got something in hand for you. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to get that cold uh, call. Um, so there's that. Um, our news doesn't do a lot of freelance work at all, um, but the magazine show, and which also includes commentary opportunities, and then the series, the various series that we do. And there's lots of internships as well, but 
whatever. Um, Heidi, what about uh, what about independents contacting you? I'm curious to know how are you inundated with um, with with you know these sort of accomplished uh, CPP grant winners who want to get their stuff uh, distributed at PRI, or do you, are you also getting sort of individuals who come through? And how do you mm -hmm. sift through that and evaluate the work? Do you have to listen? Do you actually listen to everything, or and how do you weigh it in? Try and listen to everything. Um, I mean, you know, the people who have been out there forever they have their the doors open because they've been coming to us for a long time. So you know, they just call and say, "I've got this idea." <clears throat> and, and you know their work, and you know what it's going to sound like. But for a, a new person, I need to hear—I need to hear something from you. And so, before you approach you know, with me, approach me with your idea. Have a little demo tape or something else that sounds similar to what your idea is going to be like. If you don't have a finished product right now, I need to hear something. And, and I know it's the same thing for Dale Spear for the ongoing programs too. He, the first thing he says all the time is, "Send me something. I got to hear something first. Because a lot of people have great ideas, but can you make it happen? Is it, and is it going to be good radio? So that's the stuff that I, I need to get from folks. You, you need to have a good good idea. I mean, and I, like I said before that I needed to have a finished product. I don't have to have a finished product. Right now I'm working with a couple of producers. We're working two years out. They need to get funding. I'm ready to, to um, you know, write letters for them for, you know, sending out to foundations and stuff like that. But I, li I like the idea. I heard a couple other tapes. and. Hopefully it'll get funded and you'll hear it um, on PRI in, in, in two years. But you know, if they don't get the funding, then it isn't going to happen. But it, it's just easier if you do come with something that's at least partially funded and on its way, because then we can get working on it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I work with people who are just starting out, all the way to folks who have been out there for 25 years. So please right. give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> See that? How do you like that for an op opening? Um, in terms of international work, it was really interesting, I think, to hear the uh, Kay do her uh, thing. We've heard it from a few different people from uh, Canada and other parts of the world who are at the conference talking about the different ways in which they do feature work and, and so on. I'm curious, um, Jake, if you have any concept on whether there are more international opportunities for distribution um, for work. Yeah, um, certainly we're planning on lining up international partners for the radio exchange basically to be able to subscribe to it and acquire things and also really hoping that content creators internationally like the kind of work that we've been hearing throughout this meeting um, would submit stuff to the radio exchange and it does seem to me that there's growing awareness of uh, that kind of opportunity on both sides um, but I don't know actually enough um, to be able to sort of comment and be able to give advice or tips on ways to place things well, it's kind of curious in terms of experimenting yeah. and creating different um, types of future work that we wouldn't necessarily hear here as often. But if you wanted to go down that road and do something a little more innovative or whatever you want to call it, experimental, mm -hmm. I wonder if there might be a way to pitch that to an international. Well, we need somebody international on our panel here who can talk about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in any case, I'm interested in that myself. Um, do you think that uh, Jake, that locally produced stories uh, have less favor than uh, you know, sort of national, you know, nationally known producers when it comes to you know the kind of work that you're going to accept? And also, what about different right. genres? Right. Um, no. One of the things that's exciting, uh, as we con contemplated, is that we think that there's other lives that could be had by some of the locally produced work. So if you actually did submit something to a local station around a given topic um, that worked for that show, maybe it's a local public affairs show, there could indeed be another station or several stations elsewhere that would find that relevant or interesting to them if they just knew about it. And it's just hard usually for them to even be aware of it and certainly much harder for them to then actually acquire it. Um, a lot of this could be, you know, certainly uh, stations in a geographic area that might want to share some kind of content, but also just topically based. So if you did a piece on school reform in one area, um, it could very well uh, work great on another station. And so once you've created that piece, um, it would be difficult at this point for you to go and then try to market that station by station locally. In theory, it could work, and in theory, there actually is an appetite for some of that kind of uh, work, and it doesn't... We're, we're actually hoping that we will be able to see a whole variety of um, smaller collaborative kinds of partnerships uh, using this kind of content that not everything has to be pitched to a national audience. And in fact, the real hope is that stations can figure out a way to stitch together some of their own stuff, um, things that they produce and then want to make available to other stations 
um, as well as some nationally produced things based on their own interests and their own profile and how they're hoping to develop their their programming. So I think that um, that it is. I think that it's a great way both to sort of build your portfolio and producing work for local stations, um, and then also think about just producing things that have a you know that's around a topic, it's around an idea. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily be pitched to the story of the moment that the national shows um, might be able to take. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting to try to think of what you were describing about you know being in the pitch meeting at ATC and, and floating your balloon and you know all of the criticisms that happen and the ways that you're considering whether to carry a piece or not. It's very difficult to do that on your own when you don't have that group around you uh, to bounce those ideas off of. Um, and some of it really is just particularly uh, to that Network or to what was on Morning Edition, you know, and that means that we don't want to do it on ATC. But there could indeed be, you know, a whole slew of stations for whom that would actually be um, really interesting and, and, and relevant to what they're doing. So we're hoping to facilitate that kind of opportunity. Um, questions, I'm hoping, about the pitch, specific questions to any one of these folks. Um, go ahead. Yes, uh, we have talked with program directors, and they're excited about it. They want to be able to see, you know, they want to be able to touch it <laughs> first. Um, and we can't let them touch it yet because we're building it right now. Um, but the concept they get and they like and they're excited about it. Uh, you know, the real trick is um, what they don't want is, um, you know, a stack of 1,000 CDs on their doorstep um, or 1,000 MP3 files in their inbox. Um, so, and that's not what we're offering. Um, there will be a thousand hours or more on the radio exchange, uh, but you'll be able to sort through it and sift through it and search by keyword and see what our editorial board. We're going to have really sort of a tiered system of reviewing so that there is kind of a New York Times book review of the radio exchange that goes through and picks out work and reviews it at length and sort of recommends uses around it. And then a second tier where there's really a broad review of, of pretty much everything that comes through. So you'll go on and, as a program director, feel like you can go find and identify things immediately um, that other peers that you respect um, have something to say about. Um, so yes, and, and really, you know, the other idea is that for program directors um, who are facing just, you know, time is a big issue for their ability to make decisions about this kind of stuff. Um, the the lack of uh, schedule flexibility and the, the massive stuff that's out there. Uh, we're trying to address each one of those sort of obstacles and see if there's ways in which the rate exchange and the tools we build on the site can make that a lot easier for them to decide. Any more questions? Uh, a question for Jake. The, the payment method, I, the one I heard about for the radio exchange that I liked was the idea of a really low fee, like 10 bucks per station per store. So that if a hundred stations picked it up, you can make a thousand bucks. Yeah. Is that been discounted? Is that off the store on the table? That's still on the table, and we don't know the amounts. So a lot, you know, there's, there's certainly the, the hope that, um, while there could be sort of an a la carte way like you just described, where you just go on and you might buy one story. Uh, what we want to encourage actually is more of a subscription-based thing, where a station would pay in once for a year, and then be able to acquire a certain amount of programming. Say it's if it's one of those sort of showcase ideas where it's two hours a week, so they can acquire a hundred hours of programming. They pay once, so they don't have to go through the transaction each time um, and go through the station's billing department or the university's billing department. And, and it might not even be the program director or the general manager making that decision. It might be the news producer who's on the site deciding on that. So the idea would be they'd pay in and get some amount of credit and then download pieces without worrying about those transactions. And then the producers whose pieces were downloaded would get paid out of the pool that's created from those subscriptions. The rates and the amounts, you know, we're going to have to find out how, you know, how big we can make that pool before we can even figure that out. The high, it'll start small, the idea is that it would grow. Um, but certainly the idea is, yes, you, would, you know, as a, as a producer, if you created a, a piece, it's a half-hour piece, um, and you have it on the radio exchange, and ten stations downloaded it. You know, you would have what some price per minute, and you'd multiply by ten, and that would be what you'd get in your quarterly statement from the radio exchange. We're going to talk about rights and payment next, um, but you know, if you got a question, go ahead and throw it out there. So, when you do your first demo, do you usually, or you know, your first pitch, um, are you supposed to send the finished version of the story with the email, or are you supposed to do the pitch first and then it's expected? 
if it's accepted, send the CD to I would do a pitch for. I mean, to NPR, I would do a, I would do a pitch first, a short pitch first. I mean, you could say, I've gone out, gathered incredible tape, here's just one sample or something like that, just to give them a sense. But I wouldn't put the whole thing together because if it's if you're just starting out, it's probably going to be pulled apart and regrouped. And with PRI, it's different because we're talking about a one-hour program that's right. finished, right? So um, if you had a little day, I mean, it's good that if you pitch and I say, oh, sounds like an interesting idea, I'd love to hear something, that you have something that you could send right away. And like I say, it doesn't have to be of that program, perhaps, but at least of some work that is similar to what you're talking about. Just you know, I can say for, for Tish, Valva, who's in sort of sifts through with the stuff that comes up for 848, the local show there, she talked about the idea of wanting to not only okay the idea but sort of collaborate on where that idea was going to go as opposed to getting a finished piece of material. On the other hand, um, she likes, she talked about, you know, she, wanted once it, she likes to get it on a CD as well rather than, you know, an audio format. She likes to get that finished work as well. So I wasn't quite clear on that, but I think it can go either way. If you've already got something done, send it in. If you're thinking about something, check in first, and maybe you can have more success with crafting that concept to what they're looking for. You may think of one part of it, but they may actually, hey, I kind of like that, but this is what I really want to see with that. Can you work that in, or let's do this instead? I think that, that sometimes works uh, as well. I don't know if it works in public radio, but when my band was uh, trying to get on the radio or get the A&R agents, we would send our CDs, and you know, if we were really having a tough time, we'd send a cheesecake along with it. <laughs> it works every time. It was small. Yeah. You could get cheap cheesecakes at like Star Market, and we'd send it along, and we got our calls returned immediately. Yeah, Ezra and Jones, our new uh, uh, head of programming, said... Uh, Money under the table works every time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm representing a youth media group, and our pieces are, um, our kids have an edge to them, and I think they sound great, but they're not as polished. So I'm wondering at what point can we submit it, how polished do we need to sound? And I'll probably get three different responses, I'm assuming. I don't know. You know, I mean, I think I mean, I think I think people, especially kids, don't have to sound particularly polished. I mean, there's something about sort of that raw sound that's kind of wonderful. I mean, they would be edited and maybe coached to pick up their so that their performance was compelling. But if they have a compelling performance, they don't have to sound like, you know, they've been broadcasting for 20 years at all. So I don't have to like submit narration to go with them. I can submit their. Um, I, you know, it's sort of hard to. It feels a little bit hard to understand unless I know the uh, yeah, unless the idea was expressed. Are, are they writing essays with tape or? They do both. They're doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, if I mean, I you know, I mean, my rule of thumb would be if you have a kid who's doing something that knocks you out, you should let us know about it. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Any more questions on the pitch? Yes. Something that came up when been uh, talked earlier about international presence and just alluded to it um, about uh, the place for innovative work and trying to find that. Uh, I come from a background of being coming out of this experimental sound or even uh, sound art, which is very non-narrative. It doesn't have a structure that I hear in most of the shows, but here distributed by NPR and PRI. So where should someone like myself turn with things that may be a one-off and maybe even ideas for series, but that are very unconventional and intense um, I can't pitch to an existing structure an existing show are there is there a place that I can go Third coast. <laughs> transom, you should you should send your stuff yeah, into Transom yeah. and when we're up and running you should absolutely post it up there. Is there, is there a candidate watch um, No. There I mean we're we're basically we're beginning to build the site right now and um, we're Partly because we're partnering with the um, the public radio satellite system, who's building the content depot. That's the digital um, asset management system. Um, it's dependent partly on their timeline too. But uh, we have an interim site up radioexchange.org where we're continuing to post developments, and we'll have the timeline on there and have email updates for everybody. I'm hoping soon. You know, the the, the PRC, the public radio conference in the spring, um, is really where I hope that we'll have something done and ready to show and, and have everybody using. Are you, from, are you from Chicago? Oh, okay. Don't assume also that people, I mean, just because you don't, I mean, you're wise to sort of think about what your stuff sounds like and what the shows sound like, but don't assume 
that it would work because somebody imaginative may be able to hear it and say, you know what would be totally cool? I don't know, but it's worth, it's, it's, you shouldn't cancel out the idea. I also know <laughs> for last year's uh, Chicago Matters series on housing, we commissioned a piece from a Canadian fellow who did a sound art piece, which we put on the web. But he was paid the same amount as the freelancers. Of course, that was when we had our grant. Um, but in any case, I thought that was a fabulous place to begin to get people used to and their ears more used to that type of sound art piece. And in fact, one of our documentaries was uh, a sound artist, Joan Schumann. Um, I don't think it... Anyway, um, we were, were interested in pushing it a little bit at the local level, and, and perhaps there's a show locally that, I mean, yeah, I mean, an art show is something that's willing to sort of throw that in there as part of the mix. So, anyway. I, mean, you, you, I was just going to talk about PRSS, uh, Public Radio Satellite System. So if you wanted to try and self-distribute your own stuff, if you're, are you familiar with that? If you go to, if you go to www.prss.org, they've got a catalog online, um, and... I believe you can. If it's a, there's a small fee, and then you can DAX information out to stations that way. I mean, it's a lot of work for yourself because self-distributing is. I mean, you have to call up all the stations and all that kind of stuff. But you can get it out there, and I do know that stations look at that. So you can. You can get your stuff distributed by satellite to public radio stations. You sign up for the public radio satellite system. I think mm -hmm. it's a twenty-five dollar one-time fee. Yeah. Um, I mean, then you have to pay for the the hour that you reserve on the satellite system, but that's also not very expensive. Like how much is that? It depends on where you do the uplink, but yeah, it's... Um, I, I average it about 200 bucks an hour. Yeah, uh, and I think, I think, I think if you're doing it, yeah, if, you're, if you do it at, feed it at 2 in the morning on some off night, <laughs> you can do it for like a third of that. Yeah. All right, let's get to the juicy topic of rights. Who owns the work? Uh, Margaret, you guys have just come up with a new uh, slew of contracts that yeah. you're using with independents, and uh, in fact, you have had a lot of discussions lately with right. independent and producers as to what and how to uh, craft a healthy relationship between right. them and your and your network. Um, who owns the rights once you commission a work from a freelance producer, and what does non-exclusive mean? Non-exclusive means, and I'd actually sort of like to tell a little bit of history about what happened, but I'll go back to yeah. that. Um, non-exclusive means that NPR could play your piece, but you indeed have the rights to you know, make a CD with your piece. You have the right to resell your piece. Um, there are certain circumstances that if you were selling a piece that aired on ATC to Marketplace, we want you to email us and say, this is airing on Marketplace, and we might want Marketplace to give us a credit or something like that. But it's not, I mean, I think what we realize is that sort of the rigid notion that once it's aired on um, an NPR program, it can't go anywhere else is just simply not going to be the case. And that those, um, and I think some of the best outlets for independent producers are, in fact, the CBCs and the BBCs, where you have the right to resell your stuff. Um, the other important, I mean, a bunch of important things happened and kind of got crystallized and clarified. Um, just to tell a tiny bit of history, in the wake of the Tassini case, I think a lot of news organizations across the country, from you know the Washington Post to the New York Times to NPR, realized that um, we had to acquire rights beyond the first distribution of a piece because if we didn't, we didn't necessarily have the rights to let Nexus Lexus um, transcribe it. We didn't have the right to put it up on the web. And so after that case in the Supreme Court, NPR sort of produced a series of contracts and it sort of sent a chill through the independent community and we sort of, it kind of came right back in our face and the message was very clear. You can't, you can't do this without talking to us about it. Um, we got a letter from the independent community saying, you know, stop, let's regroup, let's talk about what the needs of the independents are and the needs of NPR, and that was on September 10th, 2001. Um, and then September 11th happened, and I think it took all of us about six or seven months to regroup and pick back up and start the conversation again. And in some funny way, I think September 11th happening kind of, it, it sort of leveled the conversation a little bit because we all sort of realized what was important and what was stuff that we could talk about and figure out. Um, so what we came up with was, in a sense, a list of values that we wanted to, to project to independent producers, um, that these are non-exclusive rights, that you own your own work, that we're not in the business of reselling your piece to another entity. Um, one of the big things um, that came up a lot from independents was that an NPR editor would accept a piece, but nobody got paid until the piece aired. And since this sort of new contract period, we've 
rejigger that so once a piece is accepted and arrives through the doors of National Public Radio, you'll get paid within 30 days. It's actually a new system, so if you've submitted something and you haven't gotten paid yet, it's not because we don't mean it. It's just because it's a complete redo of the way we've done things. All the people who paid would literally just sit and wait. I mean, they didn't sit there, but they would wait for the rundowns of the shows to come in before they paid people. And then what happened, once we instituted this, people started getting paid twice. So, <laughs> anyway. <What's wrong> <laughs> <laughs> I always like when that happened. Um, you know, I think one of the fears was, well, NPR is saying they want all rights for every medium in perpetuity. You know, what what does that do for me? And it was sort of, a, I think it was a scary notion to a lot of people for good reason. Well, what if, you know, what if my piece can be made into a movie? Well, you have you you own all rights to your piece to sell it to a movie maker to make it into a movie if you have. Um, but um, but I but part of what we talked about was that um, you're going to know when the marketplace is hot enough so that your pieces that you've done are going to have some secondary value. I mean, right now NPR is not making. I was probably making negative money on stuff like transcripts and, and tapes. Um, we do it as a public service. But that was sort of a big issue for people. You're, you're, you're making money off our transcripts and our tapes. In truth, we are, we are selling transcripts and tapes. We have done so for a long time. It costs right now $100 an hour to transcribe a show. Um, every single show is transcribed whether it sells or not. So it's, 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 it's unfortunately not a money-making venture. But part of... The other piece that we realized sort of in all these conversations was that um, we wanted to acknowledge the value of the work and that while it wasn't a lucrative thing for NPR, and Lord knows we haven't been in the business of making money, never have figured out how to make you know, a great deal out of anything, um, we wanted to acknowledge the fact that people were giving us stuff that was going to go on the web, that was going to be transcribed, that people could buy. And so we um, set up a fund called the Independent Producers Fund um, for tw which is twenty thousand dollars, and I'm actually going to cross promote now. Yeah, please do. Um, at five ten, <laughs> in Superior A, anybody who wants to come and blue sky with us about what we could use that twenty thousand dollars for um, would be welcome, and uh, it would be great if you could be there. And this is not to pay people more for individual pieces. This is a way to sort of strengthen the independent community, strengthen the independent community's relationship with NPR. Um, and in truth, it's a it's a it's a symbolic thing to say, you guys matter, you do great work, this is how we're going to show it. Okay, quickly, Heidi, how do you guys handle the rights issues and... Uh... Well, the producer owns the program, basically. You know, that it's your program and you're responsible for getting all the rights needed for a broadcast uh, and you own the program. What we ask for in the contract is the exclusive right to distribute it to our affiliates during the broadcast rights window that we agree upon. Um, we also ask for first rate of refusal for um, any other kind of distribution, uh, be it commercial or non-commercial. And it just, you know, it just means, let, let's say, because we deal with Sirius Satellite, let's say XM offers to take your program and put it up, you just come back to us and say, hey, XM offered us this, you guys want to counter? And we can say yes or no, and you just accept it or not. But that's, it, that's all we ask for, so... Okay, Jake, what about the radio exchange? I know you guys are in the middle of this right now. Yeah, what are you looking at? What model do you think you're going to use? Well, I mean, the, the model basically is that the, the producers who post the content, we have to make sure that they own the rights to the content they're posting right, right off the bat, and then that we're going to try to make it so that there's a, a template that you can choose um, to set the rights terms for the stations who will acquire it thereafter. So... If you want to make it available for a station for broadcast air, but not so that they could put it on their Internet site, um, you can specify that. And then that means that a station searching through it will be able to see pretty clearly what they can and they can't do. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's important that uh, the, the non-exclusive nature of all of these agreements um, is key. It's true that there really isn't much of a market out there for some of these ancillary and secondary uses, but there could be. And there should be, and it is growing as these kinds of new delivery mechanisms and digital uh, fields and formats are open. Um, the audible.coms or the XM and Sirius satellite radios or more Internet radio that might be paid subscription radio and alternate streams. So if you are someone who produces content and retain the copyrights in your work, um, you should be careful to hold on to those and make sure you're entering into non-exclusive arrangements for distribution or for placing them on other programs so that when those opportunities arise, you are there 
and able to take advantage of them. Um, and also making sure and, uh, that, and it says this in some of the NPR language, that you clear the copyright questions on your own work before you submit it and create it. So there's some real tricks around that mm -hmm. that I don't think public radio people are, are that aware of or should be in terms of the way they use music in their pieces because music is covered under broadcast rights for public radio stations, but it's not if audible.com then sells it on their site. And they will not let you give that to them. They'll say, have you cleared the, the rights to this song? And you'll say, nope, I uh, didn't know I had to do that. That was just on public radio. And then that's it. It sort of stops dead in its tracks. So you have to think carefully about that. I mean, certainly people in film um, and, on, and music have been struggling with that for a while. And that's why you, you know, they, they have such trouble clearing rights for all those kinds of things. And that's why when you're seeing, you know, MTV and they're blocking out logos on T-shirts, it's because they don't even have the rights to clear the logo for whatever <laughs> company that owns that t-shirt um, well but they have to track them down <laughs> and they have to work out a deal and they'll say how much you know, yeah, know like each thing it's crazy so uh, you know that, that I hope actually I think they will at Third Coast next time they should have a panel devoted to the rights mm -hmm. issue um, and thinking about not just what you're doing in terms of distributing your work after it but thinking about rights as you create pieces will you down the road I mean will you be able to track um I mean, you talk about positioning yourself for the future, and we don't really know exactly what <laughs> that will yeah. mean even, but I think there's a point where you, you try to position yourself for that future in a sense that you're, you're protecting yourself and you're able to take advantage of any monies that do start to come in yep. uh, via web connections. Right. Um, and are you guys going to you know, track what's going where and who's... Well, well you've I mean, got one of the big, advantage, up, yeah, the big yeah. advantage of the rate exchange, for, and, yeah. it's, and, it's, and it's really important, a lot of people commented on, is that you will be able to track usage. You'll be able to see how many times your piece has been previewed and how many times it's been downloaded and how many visits there have been to that That's page. Amazing. And those kinds of statistics so cool. are very valuable, and it's great even for making your story to future funders to be able to say, you know, this, this piece had this many downloads and this many stations. And right now that's a problem. Tracking that carriage is hard often for things that are delivered by satellite. Um, you know, what's happening with digital media elsewhere is that, you know, in, in music and in film, um, there are big battles going on over tracking the copyrights and the technologies to the point at which they're actually trying to embed the copyright protection in the audio itself. And, and so that's something that, you know, of course, once you've created your MP3 version of a song and or of your piece and put it out there, there's nothing preventing that from going onto uh, LimeWire or the new Napster and making it out there. You know, luckily or not luckily for public radio, there hasn't really been a problem of file sharing <laughs> of uh, public radio pieces. Um, there's not a big market for it yet, but there could be. Um, and you know, we're we're interested in, in being in a position where, as new demand comes for this kind of work that we can make that available to the people who post the content on the radio exchange. You know, I think you made an interesting point before. There's a few different tiers in which people are approaching this issue. I mean, in some cases, people are very anxious to get their stuff out there at whatever at whatever cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just you want to get exposure, but then at some point, exposure should lead, or hopefully, to success. And at that point, you want to be able to cash in on that, you know, you were hanging out there for so long. Now it's time to take advantage and make the money off of that. So it's it's an odd situation because uh, you want to give up some of that proprietorship, perhaps if necessary at the get go. That's but then right. at the tail end, you want to protect yourself. Uh, hopefully, you can renegotiate. Right. I think actually, you know, I mean, I go through this all the time with my band because we, you know, we put our music out and we really want to just get as many people as possible to listen to it. And we have you know 20 of our songs up on MP3.com, and it's basically free. We hope that people will then buy the CD and they'll come to the shows and they'll buy our T-shirts and sometimes they do, but it's it's really trying to get out there and then yeah. the, you know it's always a question of how that'll we sell most of our CDs at our gigs. Yeah. Um, for in public radio, it's interesting because you can actually if you do get the exposure, if you get the distribution, you can make the argument to the foundations or the stations or the programs that fund that kind of work that your work is good enough to secure that kind of distribution and that kind of loop works better right now in this world. Um, and hopefully that would continue, but it's it, you know the radio exchange actually is trying to set up something new where right from the get-go you would be paid for the downloads for that work, which is a new idea in a lot of ways. Because right now you really couldn't, I don't think, convince stations to pay anything for uh, secondary use of this kind of work that is out there. Yeah, actually, for any other musicians in the audience, there is a new I think it's New Music Canada, which is a web uh, you send mm -hmm. it into the station and they'll they'll just put everybody's work on and you don't uh, get anything for it. Yeah. Do you, get you guys have something like that at all? Um, I don't know. 
I mean, not at, NP- not at <laughs> yeah. NPR, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about just, uh, we should take rights questions because we're sort of running out of time. Does anybody have any specific questions about rights or payment, kill fees? Uh, you know, um, gee, I, I did one for five minutes. You told me one at 5.30, but then you cut it down to three. Do I get paid for 5.30 or do I get paid for three? Yes. Just so I understand this Mm-hmm. Yep. NPR clears the rights. Yep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean it's clear, though, if you want to then redistribute it? It's a public radio. No. No. That's the trick. No, there were problems with Audible, not problems with Sirius, because Sirius was, of course, clearing rights, too, I think. Yeah, they were. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like merging them all. But Audible was, we were having, you know, they were cutting music out because they hadn't cleared rights, which was a which was a problem for them. Yeah, yeah or there's um, a problem. Yeah, we'll and for a long time, we were cutting out music on our website. Um, yeah, or, or some of the really popular series that we've distributed that had a lot of music in them, they wanted to do, because they had so many calls from listeners who wanted to buy it. Right. And then you can't sell the CDs. Oh, oh yeah. man, I mean, trying to get the rights for the music. Right. Uh, one guy worked five years to get it. Get so here's an idea. Get original music for your work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Seriously. I I'll, band, band. Band. I'll cut you a real deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sounds. Well, is there, uh, are there any markets that you know of that uh, don't grant I don't know of any, um, but I'm not that familiar with the whole scope of what's out there. Um, I think you can always ask to renegotiate. I mean, you can always try to amend a contract. In fact, I think, Margaret, that you talked about, you know, there are various levels of independent producers who work with NPR. They don't all have the same deal. I mean, that's just by, you know, that wouldn't be the way it would work out. Well, so I think you yeah. can you And can the question about the non-exclusive rights for distribution or for the actual work that's placed on a show. So I, I don't know. I think it works differently for different shows, even on the PRI list. If you're, if you're working, if you're submitting something to Savvy Traveler, um, what's the, do you retain the copyright in that work? We have had non-exclusive rights for a couple of years now, and we are in the midst of actually revamping the contracts that have been left up and down in about a month. But they're being revamped in a way, well, in theory, they're being revamped in a way that's, that's better for independent producers. Um, and the two areas that are, we're specifically focusing on that cause a lot of trouble are our contracts claim that we, give no, we don't pay bill fees. And the fact is we do pay bill fees, and so the contract doesn't, wasn't correct, and mm-hmm. it caused a lot of, a lot of friction. Anxiety. Yeah. Um, the other thing was about, was something Mark also mentioned, was about payment we paid on broadcast forever. Um, and that's an irritant to people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we hold stuff, particularly on Savvy Travelers, because somebody does something yep. seasonally that might not air for months. Yep. And uh, that's going to be changed so that we pay on acceptance. Um, and that means that you would be paying us pretty I think you asked a question mm-hmm. about if you submitted it five minutes and it gets cut to three. Mm-hmm. Once, it, once you start to pay on acceptance, it's paid at whatever the editor accepts it out at. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens later, right. somebody ends up saying we need to cut it down to, to three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have the you the copyright, mm-hmm. and we we both can exploit both the production company and the independent producer can 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 resell and do other things with the work. And if we make any money off of it, we're supposed to share it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, we've never made any money off right. of it. Mm-hmm. What about streaming rights? How does that come into play here in terms of? Um, that's part of you know, our, I mean, that's part of this whole new thing is to have. I mean, NPR now has. I mean, it's actually wonderful and it's now incredibly listenable too. Everything goes up on the website, and that's part of the rights that we wanted to get. And really, it's it, it, again. I mean, I look at this as a, a public service so that people they missed your wonderful piece on X and they can go that night and hear about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what these new contracts allow. Mm-hmm. But what about for you, Heidi? I mean, in terms of even the Chicago Matters series, that we, you just sent us a contract to distribute those documentaries, and you specifically mentioned streaming rights, and I had to go back to the right. independent producers and make sure that was okay. You're talking yes. about then the affiliate stations who are carrying this who then want to stream that audio. Uh, yes, simulcast and, streaming. Yeah. Simulcast yeah. streaming, yeah. 
Well, the stations have to have the rights, too, to do that. And they have to sign a contract with PRI that says that they have that. But the producers should find that out with anybody that's in their program, and then it's okay to do that, too. Does anybody take photos that they've submitted with their work for website use yet? Because I find that to be a growing thing, where if you've got a website that's active and lively and interactive, people more and more want to put photos that go along with your show on that website. And I've found at least people asking for credits of the photos. If you're not a professional photographer, even if you've gone out with that box camera and you've got that shot and it's going up and it ends up being downloaded by an affiliate and put in a promotional brochure to promote your work that's coming up on their airwaves. Some people are just asking for credit. I think you mentioned, is it Living on Earth, Jake, that's paying a flat, small fee for photos now? They have a pretty active site where they have all their shows up there and most of them have photos accompanying them. They have a fee worked out. Tashima, did you want to ask a question? Oh, no. I wanted to make a comment about some of the people's asking but I work for Chicago Public Radio, and there's a very uh, well-known novelist in Chicago. For many years, commentaries, we would air them, and the, the writers would not have any rights to their work. We could put it on, we could stream it, or whatever. And we could sell the tapes to people who were interested, just regular listeners. Well, this novelist said, and this was the first time, that anyone had ever made this request. No, you may not sell any of my work. Um, no, even if you, someone wanted an entire hour of our show, we have to exclude right. her commentary right. from the show. So I'm just saying that to say, if you don't ask, you don't get. That's right. And she was the first one to ask. And now other writers are asking her. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had that same, that, it was very hard, that transition time was very hard and, and having people give you rights to put their stuff up on the web. Yeah. All right, anything else? We're actually at 5, just a bit after 5 o'clock, almost 10 after. Yeah, go ahead. The new contract is not exclusive, but if I sold the story to you guys last year and now I want to resell it like before the new contract, what's, what, what's the deal? I don't think you're going to have any problem. I mean, shoot an email to your editor. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no great sense of propriety. I don't think anybody's going to hold you to that. You can quote her on that. She said, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Call me. <laughs> oh, we'll make it happen. All right, thanks, everybody, for coming. You can hang around and ask the questions of these guys afterward, and we'll see you tonight. <laughs>